good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to The Climate Report, broadcasting every second and fourth Thursday on KVMR-FM at 6.30 p.m. On today's show, we're going to give you the latest on a couple of data points regarding science and global warming. We're also going to talk about the good and bad about technology, whether it's artificial intelligence or electric bicycles. And then we're going to close with more information on what is some of the easiest and most impactful personal actions that people can take, and that is adjusting what we eat. First, let's start with this story that we've only recently learned about the issue regarding carbon in the atmosphere and global warming and climate change. There's an interesting bit in the uh, recent Guardian about the scientist who raised the dangers of carbon dioxide back in the 1950s. Actually, the first person who discovered the impact of carbon dioxide on the atmosphere was a woman back in the 1850s. So in the 1950s, though, physicist Gilbert Plass predicted climate change blaming fossil fuels for rising temperatures. It's often assumed that most people in the 1950s were blissfully unaware of climate change, but in fact, there were already alarm bells ringing. 70 years ago, in 1953, the Canadian physicist Gilbert Plass talked to a scientific meeting about the dangers of carbon dioxide pollution. In a sensational statement that became headline news around the world, he announced, quote, the large increase in industrial activity during the present century is discharging so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere that the average temperature is rising at the rate of one and a half degrees Fahrenheit per century. Now, at the time, although climate scientists had realized that world temperatures were indeed rising, they put forward other explanations for the warming, such as sunspots or wobbles in the Earth's orbit around the sun, both of which have been now since been debunked over the last 70 years of climate science. Well, Plass had researched the climate in his spare time while working at the Ford Motor Company before publishing his research in two science journals, as well as writing a popular piece in a science magazine. A few years later, in 1961, he went further and blamed fossil fuels for most of the global warming. His words were prophetic. Carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere then were about 310 parts per million. Now they are over 420 parts per million and rising each year, along with global temperatures and the impacts thereof. To go along with that, indeed, there is a uh, brand new set of science that shows that global greenhouse gas emissions, as opposed to reversing and setting records going downwards, we're continuing to set records going upwards. Global greenhouse gas emissions are at an all-time high, according to a brand new study threatening to push the world into unprecedented levels of global heating. The world, they say, is rapidly running out of our carbon budget, that's describing the amount of carbon dioxide that can still be poured into the atmosphere if we are to stay within the vital threshold of one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures. Now, to give you a sense of uh, what we're looking at, science says that right now we only have the ability to emit about 250 billion tons of carbon dioxide before we will blow past the crucial threshold of one and a half degrees Celsius. So, we can still burn and put 250 billion tons of carbon dioxide in the air, according to science. However, uh, 
Our current rates of emissions are over 50 billion tons a year over the past decade. So if we're burning 50 billion tons a year and we only have 250 billion tons before we blow past the threshold, you can do the math. That means five more years if we don't reduce what we're doing. Um, one of the uh, lead authors of the paper said this is the critical decade for climate change. Decisions made now will have an impact on how much temperatures will rise and the degree and severity of impacts we will see as a result. He said the rate of the annual increase in emissions has slowed down, but far stronger action was needed. He says, quote, we need to change policy and our personal approaches in light of the latest evidence about the state of the climate system. Time is no longer on our side. In other important science news related to time, there are more and more studies being put into what are called tipping points. While climate science is very mature, figuring out how tipping points interact, and those are complicated systems where lots of variables send something into irreversible decline. And a brand new study has looked even more granularly than before. And they've concluded that ecological tipping points could occur much sooner than expected. According to this study that models how tipping points can amplify and accelerate one another, ecological collapse is likely to start sooner than previously believed. Based on these findings, the authors warn that more than a fifth of ecosystems worldwide, including the Amazon rainforest, are at risk of a catastrophic breakdown within our current human lifetimes. Uh, Professor Simon Wilcock, who co-led the study, it could happen very soon. We could realistically be the last generation to see the Amazon. The research was just published and is likely to generate a heated debate. Compared with long-established and con conclusively proven link between fossil fuels and global heating, the science of tipping points and their interactions is relatively undeveloped. Several Brazil-based scientists have warned, again, that these tipping points may all come much sooner than what the United Nations the, has been saying. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, is considered the world's leading global body for the science on climate change. They've been more cautious, saying there's a chance of a tipping point in the Amazon by the end of the century. But several Brazil-based scientists disagree, and the new study underlines the alarming prospect. What they've noticed is that most studies on tipping points related to the climate until now have focused on only one driver of destruction, such as climate change or deforestation. But this study says that when you combine this with other threats, such as water stress, degradation, river pollution from mining, the breakdown comes much quicker. For example, Lake Erhai in China collapsed much sooner than most observers expected. According to the study, that was because projections on the future had been based on one factor. They were merely projecting when it would collapse based on agricultural runoff that was loading the water system with excess nutrients. But other stresses compounded and accelerated this degradation. Once you added climate variation, water management, and other forms of pollution, the lake system quickly lost its resilience. So overall, this team of scientists used computer models with 70,000 different variables that they could adjust. And they found that up to 15% of tipping point collapses 
could occur as a result of new stresses or extreme events. What they learned is that even if one part of an ecosystem is managed sustainably, new stresses from external issues such as global warming and extreme weather events could still tip the balance towards a collapse. So the scientists say the findings were devastating, but that also had a positive potential because it did show that while small changes in the system could have big impacts in the negative direction, it also could happen in the opposite direction. Lead co-author said, quote, the same logic can work in reverse. Potentially, if we apply positive pressure, we can see rapid recovery. Although, again, he emphasized time was running out faster than most people realized. Let's talk about a couple of different forms of technology because a lot of folks in America are getting their news on climate change from the status quo media that is oftentimes giving mixed messages about technology and it can be quite confusing. And for a lot of folks, there's a sense that, oh, we're just going to buy our way out of climate change and just tell us what technologies to buy. You might be surprised to discover that a lot of things really aren't clear. So for example, here's a quick piece on artificial intelligence which is being looked at with a skeptical eye in many regards around the world and the potential negative impacts. But would you be surprised to discover that artificial intelligence is being used to boost climate information? That's right, there's a network of young volunteers around the world who spends their time translating climate information into dozens of languages. And their work is being boosted by new artificial intelligence tools designed by Google. Since founding the group called Climate Cardinals three years ago in order to improve global climate literacy, Sophia Chiani, who is 21, has built a network of 9,000 young volunteers around the world, and they stay busy translating climate reports and content into more than 100 languages, including Swahili, Hebrew, Urdu, Mandarin, and Hindi. So English is the main language of international scientific communication with 80% of scientific papers written in English. What does that mean to the climate? Well, a 2016 study found that languages were still a major barrier to the global transfer of scientific knowledge. Just 18% of the world's population speaks English as either a native or a second language. So when 80% of the scientific papers are put out in a language that more than 80% of the people don't speak, there tends to be an issue. Well, that's where this group of young volunteers have come in. 9,000 young volunteers have translated 500,000 words just in the last three years. They work with professional networks, including uh, Respond Crisis Translation and Translators Without Borders for editing and proofreading to ensure that their translations are still credible and accurate. Well, it took them three years, 9,000 volunteers, it took them three years to translate 500,000 words. By trialing Google Cloud's new AI-powered translation hub platform, the Climate Cardinals has translated an additional 800,000 words into more than 40 languages. So before AI took three years to do 500,000 words in 10 languages, they trialed some AI and they were able to transfer climate scientific knowledge 800,000 words into 40 languages. Um, the um, founder says it's crazy the change in pace was immediate 
We've created the same volume of output in the first three months of this partnership that we had done in our first two years of operation. The founder uh, is studying science, technology, and society at Stanford University in the heart of Silicon Valley. So that's uh, an interesting demonstration of how artificial intelligence can potentially be used in a good way to help with the climate issue. Uh, they're saying that those who are being worst impacted by the climate crisis deserve to have access to the resources they need to make sense of the disasters impacting their communities. Africa is on the front lines of the climate crisis despite barely contributing to it. And people who are being disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis tend to be people of color, and 80% of climate refugees are women. So this is a social justice issue. Um, they said the climate cardinals youth members were still collating, formatting, and delivering translations. And um, if that's something that you know a young person that wants to make a difference, that might be worth looking up. The climate cardinals is now using AI to translate climate information and disseminate it around the world. Well, then when it comes to other forms of technology, there have been a lot of questions about EVs and batteries. Well, I also know that there is a big uptake of electric bikes that um, have batteries and uh, have the ability to charge. I myself know several people that have bought electric bikes and e-bikes. However, it is important to be aware that there are some dangers and issues with e-bikes that are using batteries that aren't listed by the underwriter's laboratory, UL. There was um, a sad story coming out of New York. Um, four people just died in an e-bike fire, and battery fires are putting people at risk with safer alternatives sometimes costing too much. So this is a big deal in, uh, in New York City. Um, this has been happening over and over. It's a growing problem. It's now claimed the lives of 13 people this year in America's densest city. Um, that's more than twice the number of deaths last year. And the fires are being caused by cheap, dangerous electric batteries powering two-wheeled bikes that uh, serve the city's 65,000 delivery workers. Um, Tuesday's disaster is the 108th lithium battery-related fire this year in New York City. So again, that's just in New York City, just this year. We're almost halfway through the year, and there have already been 108 lithium battery-related fires. And they are saying that it is uh, something that's devastating because lithium battery fires often cause explosions, giving victims no chance to react. Now, before people go running scared and saying that e-bikes and uh, electric batteries are super dangerous, it's made clear in all the reports about this that the fire departments are advising people to only use batteries for e-bikes that have been certified by the underwriters lab, that's UL, a rigorous safety testing lab. And uh, e-bikes that use these batteries easily cost thousands of dollars. That's beyond reach for most delivery workers and city dwellers who tend to buy no-name e-bikes, batteries, and chargers for a fraction of the cost. Um, to deal with this, New York City City Council recently passed a measure banning the um, sale of non-UL certified electric bikes, batteries, and scooters. That doesn't do much for the New Yorkers who have already bought uncertified equipment. Um, they're also trying to figure out how to install different places around the city where people can stop and plug in and charge um, and take a rest. Unfortunately, 
those uh, residents in New York City are saying that they don't want those set up. So the transition to e-bikes and e-vehicles um, is still fraught with dangers and technical issues. And the message from scientists is that if you're purchasing e-bikes to make sure that uh, your e-bike battery is certified by UL Underwriters Laboratory. Okay, so that's a bit about the latest science regarding carbon, regarding tipping points, um, regarding alt, uh, artificial intelligence, and regarding battery chemistry. Well, what science is also saying is one of the most important technologies that is needing to be changed is the technology between our two ears, and that is our brain. And one of the uh, ways that is continuing to being shown that we can make an impact as individuals is how we eat and consume our food. It's an easy way to make a difference according to science, doesn't require financing fancy technology or writing your political leaders. And the importance of it is in a couple of recent reports um, that, uh, that I wanted to make sure I brought to you because a lot of us are focused on transportation and fossil fuels and how we drive. But there was an interesting new study that shows emissions from our food systems alone, even if we tackled our transportation, even if we flipped a switch overnight and suddenly there's no carbon emissions coming from our personal transportation, if we don't change what we eat and how we eat it, science is saying we will still blow past 1.5 degrees Celsius. Meat, dairy, and rice production specifically are projected to bust beyond the 1.5 degrees Celsius by themselves. So this article here says that emissions from the food system alone will drive the world past 1.5 degrees Celsius of global heating unless high methane foods are tackled. Climate heating emissions from food production dominated by meat, dairy, and rice will by themselves break the key international target of 1.5 degrees Celsius if left unchecked, a detailed study has shown. The analysis estimated that if today's level of food emissions continued, that would result in adding at least 0.7 degrees Celsius of heating by the end of this century on top of the 1.2 degrees Celsius we've already seen. And if you add our existing 1.2 to the projected 0.7 then that gets us to 1.9. So again, if today's level of food emissions continues, then that alone would push us to almost two degrees Celsius. The study showed that 75% of this food-related global warming was driven by foods that are high sources of methane. For example, those coming from ruminant livestock such as cattle and rice paddy fields. However, the scientists said that the temperature rise associated with our food could be cut by more than half, by 55%, simply by cutting meat consumption in rich countries to medically recommended levels, reducing emissions from livestock and their manure, and using renewable energy in the food system. So I'll say those again. Science is saying that there are three things we could do that would get rid of the majority of this associated heating from our food system. The first one, again, cutting meat consumption in rich countries to medically recommended levels. If you're a regular listener to the Climate Report, you know that in rich countries, especially here in America, we are not only eating a lot of meat, we are eating more meat than is even recommended medically, and it is going up year after year. So cutting meat consumption to purely medically recommended levels, again, that doesn't mean become a vegetarian or a vegan. It's just eating 
the right amount of meat, as well as reducing emissions from livestock and then using renewable energy throughout the food system. That right there, science says, would get rid of 55%. Well, previous studies, as you know, if you're a regular listener of the Climate Report, have shown the huge impact of food production on the environment, particularly meat and dairy. But the new study provides estimates of the temperature rises that their emissions could cause. They note this could be a significant underestimate, however, as the study assumed that animal product consumption would remain level in the future, but it's actually projected to rise 70% within the next couple of decades. So the contribution of global food production to the climate crisis is complex because it involves several different important greenhouse gases, not just CO2, but also methane and others, all of which have different abilities to trap heat and different levels of persistence in the atmosphere for different amount of times. So, for example, previous studies have converted the impact of methane and other gases into an equivalent amount of CO2, but this has underplayed the high potency of methane in very short timescales. So this research, to give you a sense of just how thorough it is, treated each greenhouse gas separately, and they looked at 94 types of food, enabling their impact on climate over time to be better understood. So 94 types of food, looking at several different greenhouse gases associated with each of them, and feeding all of that data into a widely used climate model showed that the continuation of what we're doing, again, would lead to an additional rise of almost one degree Celsius on top of what we've already experienced. So the lesson that they're saying is that it's not just about cars and power. Matter of fact, if we address cars and power and we don't address food, we are still looking at going beyond safe levels. Um, Food-related temperature rise could be curbed, again, researchers said, if people adopted the healthy diet recommended by Harvard Medical School, which allows for a single serving of red meat a week. Such a diet would mean a big cut in meat-eating in rich nations, but it would actually mean an increase in some poorer countries where they don't even eat red meat at least once a week. There are other ways to reduce the food impact, so cutting emissions from methane, using feed additives for cattle, better management of manure. Also, switching to green energy again in the food system would cut the numbers. So uh, that all is to help underscore the fact that we have a lot of low-hanging fruit around us and that the science keeps saying there are things we can do immediately and now. Um, you know, a lot of folks want to, um, you know, write their uh, congressperson. They want to drive an electric vehicle. Um, and in this case, science is saying that it's good to write a new code in our own brains for how we eat and to drive different food into our digestive systems. Um, right now, only a third of the world's countries have included policies to cut emissions from agriculture in their climate plans. So that means that individuals then can take up that fight. And I'm going to close today with an interesting article. I touched on this on the last show about eating local. Is eating local produce actually better for the planet? And it turns out that we may need to think again. Most emissions come from food production, not transportation. In June 2005, and I'm going to read an article here from uh, The Guardian. In June 2005, four women spoke at a San Francisco celebration of the first World Environment Day in North America. They were Bay Area locals, and they invited the audience to join them in a local food challenge, spending the next month eating only food produced within 100 miles 
of their homes. For those that are living here close into the radio station, uh, 100 miles away from here would take us to um, Vallejo to the west. It would take us to Stockton to the south. It would take us up towards uh, Redding in the north and Reno to the east. So it would really be a restriction to Northern California. The article continues that although the concept of eating locally was not new, these women gave it new life with a new name, calling themselves locavores. In his 2006 book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, Bay Area local Michael Pollan also advocated for the local food movement. And by 2007, the following year, the Oxford American Dictionary had dubbed locavore its word of the year. Nearly two-thirds of Americans believe that eating local food is better for the environment. But in recent years, a series of studies have shown that eating locally might not be as environmentally impactful in and of itself as advocates once hoped. In fact, research shows that the carbon footprint of transporting food is relatively small. One to nine percent of total emissions, depending on the type of food, is from its transportation. What's more important is to focus on how your food is produced. Eating local can be a part of that, but it doesn't have to be. For example, is it better to buy something that's grown in your region using industrial farming practices? Or is it better to buy something that was made in France organically using regenerative practices? It turns out the science and the math is showing it's more important to focus on how things are being grown and produced and not where they're being grown and produced. So what is the evidence for eating local? In 1994, the UK-based Sustainable Agriculture, Food, and Environment Alliance published a report called the Food Miles Report, the dangers of long-distance food transport. This offered scientific backing for the burgeoning local food movement. It argued that the long-distance transportation of food was only possible because of cheap, non-renewable fossil fuels that allowed transnational corporations to, quote, exploit land, labor, and resources in developing countries in the South for the production of raw commodities, to which they had considerable markups before selling them to the global North. And uh, Laura Eindhoven, a PhD researcher in agricultural economics in Belgium, says, as you can perceive in the title of this report, food miles were initially considered almost by definition as a big threat and contributor to climate change. The farther the food had to travel, the more fossil fuel was used and greenhouse gases emitted, logically. Those emissions are especially high for food transported by airplane. Food that is flown is responsible for up to 50 times as much carbon dioxide as food transported by boat. But fortunately, very little food travels by air. Think of perishables that need to be eaten soon after harvest, like asparagus and berries. Those tend to be flown. Many fruits and vegetables with a longer shelf life, like, shelf life, like apples and broccoli, can be shipped by boat, truck, or rail, whose food miles produce far fewer emissions. So the question is, is it the best way to reduce food-related emissions? So in the 2000s, scientists finally began conducting full life cycle assessments of food supply chains, looking at how much greenhouse gases are emitted, not just when food is transported, but also when crops are planted and fertilized, animals are taken out to pasture, and food scraps end up in the garbage. And what they found was that transporting food made up a relatively small percentage of food's total carbon footprint. In a 2018 paper, a team of researchers from the UK and Switzerland found that only 1% to 9% of food's emissions come from transportation and packaging. 
The vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions, 61%, come during production while food is still on the farm. That's supported by research published in the early 2000s in the U.S. and Europe. Said the Ph.D. in Toven, what we eat and how it is produced makes more impact on our food carbon footprint than purely where it comes from in terms of distance. And the greatest source of emissions actually varies among foods. In many crops, it's the fertilizer and pesticides required to grow large quantities of food on industrial farms. So, for example, when you're looking at um, industrial non-organic crops, then the emissions are rolled into all of those petroleum-based fertilizers and pesticides. Switching to organic regenerative, science is saying, would reduce those emissions regardless of where it was grown. But then in beef, for example, less than 1% of emissions comes from transportation. The vast majority comes from just feeding cattle. So whether you have a cow next to you um, or whether it's far away, it's not the transportation that is causing the issues. So it's interesting. The research team says that there are benefits, of course, to eating locally. It can support farms that use environmentally friendly production practices, but it's not necessarily the end-all be-all and shouldn't be our driving force when we're looking to make a difference with the climate. Local farms can be important alternatives, especially when there are disruptions in supply chains. However, what's needed is a diversity of scale in our production system around the whole world. Well, that's all for today's Climate Report broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR FM and at KVMR.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb, and as always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR website for sharing or relisting. Questions or comments, feel free to send an email to climatereport at kvmr.org.